Hey, this is Harrison Ford, and you're listening to the Ole Miss RUF podcast for October 31st, 2007. Revelation 19, I will read verses 1 through 9. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word tonight. John says, After this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just. For He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality. And has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen! Hallelujah! And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. This is God's word for us tonight. I have a distinct memory as a child. It's weird the things that your mind holds on to at the ripe old age of 39. Of as a child asking my father what it was that we were going to do in heaven. Following? What will our time be filled up with? And my father, I believe rightly now, answered, Well, son, we will spend an eternity in heaven praising God. And I distinctly remember trying to sort of register that for a moment before I looked at him and said, Anything else? <laughs> I mean, is that all that we're going to do? I mean, because the prospect of sort of spending an eternity praising God didn't really thrill me in the way in which heaven should. My reaction sort of reminds me of that old Far Side cartoon. Do you know this one? I may have referenced this before this semester. The Far Side cartoon, it's got the guy who's just arrived in heaven, and he's sitting on the cloud, and he's got his new wings and his little harp and whatnot. And the little thought bubble above his head says... You know, I wish I'd brought a magazine. It's sort of funny. Obviously not as much to you as it was to me. In other words, how boring. 
But if you're going to take Christianity seriously, this question has got to be answered because we come in Revelation 19 to yet another picture of the culmination of human history. By the way, I mentioned earlier on in the semester, you might not remember this, that the book of Revelation doesn't necessarily follow in a chronological order. Do you remember that? Rather, what it does is run through a series of visions that themselves run through the plot of history. Therefore, we saw the culmination of human history at the end of the seal judgments a few weeks ago. We also actually see it at the end of the trumpet judgments. This one comes at the end of the bowl judgments. But all that to say is that at the end of the at the culmination of human history, it is clear that the primary activity of heaven and therefore of eternity itself is worship and praise. Worship and praise throughout eternity. Now we see this very clearly in the passage through this fourfold repetition of the word hallelujah. That word literally means Yahweh be praised or praise God if you translate it literally there. And interestingly enough, those four words only appear in the New Testament in this passage. Do you realize that? It comes in a couple of places in the Old Testament, mostly confined to the Psalms, especially Psalms 113 through 118, which are known as the Hallel Psalms or the Praise Psalms. Some of you may have actually read Psalm 150, which gives the 13-fold hallelujahs, this litany of praise, right? But the point is, is that the Psalter ends and the whole Bible ends in the ceaseless praise of the God of the universe. For that reason, the worship of God, I would suggest to you, is the primary activity of eternity. And because it's the primary activity of eternity, listen, listen, it's the primary activity of the human soul, of every human soul, not just religious people, every single person in this room. Now look, I am not so foolish as to think that this stirs any of you. For most of us, we think of that and we look and kind of go, hmm, yeah, whatever. And to be honest with you, I can't say that I blame you. Because for many of you, your generation has sort of taken the phrase worship and praise and done something to it that... I'm not sure is what needs to be done to it. Because the phrase has been truncated. For most of us, we use those words to describe a certain portion of a religious service. It's the portion of the religious service where the lights go dim. The music turns uh, either sort of darkly contemplative or perhaps lightly exuberant, depending on the mood that's trying to be set. set. The individuals there begin to sort of close their eyes, right? And they worship. That's their time of worship. For some people, this is accompanied perhaps by the lifting of hands uh, or perhaps swaying about. For other people who are sort of less comfortable with those kinds of uh, expressions and almost always much more self-conscious... It's accompanied by a longing for all of it to end. <laughs> for it to go away. When will this be over? And most of those people I talk to feel quite unspiritual about it in the process. My friends, if that is all you have in your sort of cultural and religious vocabulary for the phrase worship and praise, um, we need to do some redefinition. And let me see if I can take a quick stab at it before we get to our passage. Look, first of all, I think this passage in Revelation 19 talks about worship first. Worship is at the heart of the universe. 
Let me see if I can give you a definition. Worship is nothing more than what happens to you, listen very carefully, when you find something that you value. Do you hear that? Worship is what happens to you when you discover something that you value. All right, let me take a little illustration to sort of unpack this. Ladies, let's imagine that you have a lovely piece of jewelry. Let's say a brooch. Does anyone wear brooches anymore? Do we wear these anymore? Okay, there's a couple of ladies that are nodding. We'll do whatever we can. And let's say it was given to you by some distant aunt or something. You wear it to church one Sunday and somebody takes a look at it and says, Wow, that's a really interesting piece that you have there. You know, you ought to, you ought to get that appraised to see if it's worth anything. So one afternoon, you've got a little bit of time, you find yourself uh, your way to a jeweler. And you set it down in front of him and you say, What do you think about this piece that I have here? The jeweler sort of takes out his little eyeglass and stares at the piece and suddenly he drops the piece, pushes himself back from the desk and says... Do you know what it is that you have here? I mean, this piece is the long lost something or other, right? We haven't seen this forever. This piece of jewelry is priceless. Now, at that moment, ladies, think about what happens to you. I would suggest from that moment you are changed. First of all, you are changed emotionally. You're changed because it used to be that you thought that it was kind of pretty. I mean, it's kind of nice. It goes with this outfit, that, that, this outfit, and that outfit. But now, when you look at it, it moves you. You realize that there's something valuable about it. Secondly, you're changed very radically socially. You ever thought about that? Suddenly, you walk around with a little bit of lighter uh, uh, step in your walk, right? In other words, you don't have to worry about paying bills anymore, ever. You are set for life for this thing. You're thinking about touring the world just to take it to the museums of the world. Finally, you're absolutely changed in your actions as well. You know, the words you used to kind of toss the thing around, you know, every now and then you'd lose it. But now you know where it is at all times. It is under lock and key, guarded 24-7. Do you see how that works? What happened there? I'll tell you what happened. You began to worship. That's it. You found value in it. Whatever a person does, listen, listen, listen. Whatever a person does in response to finding something valuable is, by definition, worship. That's it. That's what goes on. Now, what this means is, small little asterisk here, is that you can and do worship all kinds of things. A job, a career, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, marriage, family, children, anything. If you find value in it, you begin to give your time to it, you give your money to it, you give your affections to it, you give your attention to it. That, my friends, is worship. Okay, so what is praise, secondly? Well, praise, secondly, is what you say when you're worshiping. Does that make sense? In other words, praise is simply what comes out of your mouth when you've found something valuable. There's a wonderful little passage uh, that C.S. Lewis talked about in his Reflections on the Psalms. Where Lewis is kind of freaked out by how excited the psalmists get about praising God. They're so into praising God. And Lewis says something fascinating. And it's completely changed the way that I think about what we do when we're doing worship. Because he said, look, praise is nothing more than our completion of our enjoyment of something. Let me, let me ask you a question. Have you really enjoyed the thing that, you've, that you're enjoying until, until you've told somebody about it? I would suggest that you have not. 
Look, I remember a, a couple of years ago, actually it was in the fall of 2001, all of the Xbox gamers on the campus at Ole Miss were blown away by the release of the definitive first-person shooter, Halo. Right? We just had the release of, of uh, Halo 3 this fall, so I thought it would be really relevant. <clears throat> For the next few months, you cannot imagine how many guys would come by my office to ask me if I had seen it or played it. You can't imagine. I mean, these guys were unbelievably aggressive in their evangelism for Halo, right? It was all they could talk about. They would actually work with me on my schedule so I could come and play it with them. In other words, what I think Lewis is saying is, is you can't enjoy the game by itself, The truth is you can't enjoy anything by itself. You've got to tell somebody. As a matter of fact, the large part of the enjoyment of the thing is the telling of somebody else. Did you see that last night? We say this on Monday morning after the big game the night before. Did you see that game? We have to talk about it. So hopefully when we start with this, this passage will make much more sense to you. Because the repeating peals of thunderous and loud exuberant praise that's exploding from the host of heaven is nothing more than the result of having looked into the face of something altogether wondrous. And all I want to look at tonight is, what is it? Very briefly, I want to consider very briefly, what is it that has moved these people to ceaseless eternal praise? In short, it is the acts of God in history. And two in particular. Two in particular that I want to focus on tonight as we sort of finish this up. What is all this excitement about? Two things. Number one, God is our champion. And number two, God is our husband. God is our champion and God is our husband. Look, the first word out of the mouth of this chorus is what? Salvation. You can't have salvation unless there's something from which you have been saved. And for the people of God here in Revelation 19, they've been saved from what we talked about last week as we considered the whore of Babylon. Which is what? The injustice and the inequity of Babylon. That's what they've been saved out of. There is, the, people have looked and said that what Babylon inflicted on humanity was a personal and a corporate cataclysm. Because in that kind of world, two and two did not make four. There was no justice. There was no way to appeal to what was right. There was nothing but chaos. Now, I've got to be honest with you. I don't have the desire to revisit the last four weeks of that very dark study any more than you do. But my friends, if you don't feel the weight of this after what we've looked at in the last few weeks, then you are either wildly secluded from the outside world or worse, you're complicit with Babylon and you're working with her and not against her. Because my friends, inequity and injustice is all around us. And those realities are intending to leave a pit in your stomach, a yearning for wrongs to be made right. Let me see if I can illustrate this for you. In the last year or so, RUF has gotten behind, at least we did this a couple times last year, a couple of showings of this film that was made called Invisible Children. Now look, we had no intention of trying to politicize any sort of event by getting behind that particular video. And if you haven't seen it, you need to find a copy and come to my office. You can check out my copy and take a look at this thing. But what we wanted to do by that was simply to put it in front of you. That there is a gut-wrenching wrong 
that is being perpetrated on children around the world daily. Y'all, whether it is the Janjaweed in Sudan or the LRA in Uganda, there are merciless, unanswered crimes that are presently being committed against humanity all over this globe. What do you do with that? How do you respond to that? How will you resolve the pit that comes into your own stomach when you see that going on? Well, you know, for most of us, that's too far detached. Africa's a long way away. Who in the world's going to go over there? Except for Patrick, right? And he has to, right? Who's going to do something like that? Well, how about the injustice that's in your own neighborhoods, right? Look, we glibly sort of utter under our breath whenever we come past a homeless man, you know, get a job. But see, what we fail to realize is the man has tried to get a job, but he can't. You want to know why? Because he has no place of residence. He can't write down in a job application his place of residence where they can mail his W-2 form when they finally get it all in. And so therefore, since he doesn't have a place of residence, he didn't get a place of residence because his landlord decided he would kick him out. Why? Because he was going through some personal struggles. What if you lost everything in the midst of your personal struggles? And then, of course, you look and say, well, then he should appeal to the city government for help. Oh, please, don't be so naive. Every social worker with whom I've ever spent any kind of time will look and say, you cannot imagine the injustice that's committed against people who are the cast-offs of society. You say, well, that's awful. They should get a lawyer. Are you thinking? How in the world are they supposed to afford a lawyer? My friends, it is injustice. And it is everywhere, every day, and it's happening at every single turn. My friends, what does that do to you? Well, this is why the people of God rejoiced at the prospect of the God of the universe coming to make all wrongs right. Look, I know that verse 3, look at it again. I realize that verse 3 sounds a little overly vindictive to you. Actually, look at the very end of verse 2. And he has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Hallelujah, the smoke from her, that is the whore of Babylon, goes up forever and ever. It's terribly offensive to our modern sensibilities, is it not? But my friends, it's the people of God rejoicing at the fact that God is going to make all inequities right. All of the injustices will be overturned. They will be judged rightly, they will be judged fairly, and they will be judged equitably. The enemies of Christianity will look and say, this is exactly what I hate about Christianity. They'll look at us and they'll say, you know what? That kind of vengeful, angry God is the God that I left Christianity over. Thank you very much. I don't want to be a part of a God who's going to crush and do all these things to people. But you know what I would argue? I would actually say, because they'll say, that makes for vengeful people. If you have a vengeful God, it'll turn you into a vengeful person that you're wanting to exact revenge on people. Do you know what? I think the exact opposite is true. I'm very indebted to Sandy Wilson, the pastor up at Second Press uh, in Memphis for this insight. This is genius. Look, y'all, a, a God who exacts justice does not make people vindictive. I think it does just the opposite. Think about it. The only way for you to keep from being vengeful is to be convinced that somebody else is going to do the job of enacting justice that you can't do. Why is it that you get so angry when injustices are committed against you? It's because there's something inside you that looks and thinks to yourself, I'm the only one who really cares about this. I'm the only one that's going to do anything about this. But see, the Christian's different. He looks and goes, you know what? There are all kinds of moral ambiguities in this world that I have no idea how to answer. 
That's why I'm happy to leave it to God. And I'm happy that one day, someday, He will sort it out. Why? Because of the promises that I have in Revelation 19, that one day He will bring justice. Look, you're blind if you don't feel a sense of relief from that. And that the people of God were thrilled to look and say, there is right and wrong in the universe. We do not live in the relativistic morass of confusion that our culture has foisted on us. And they rejoice because of it. We have a champion in our God. Christians are not doormats. Forever anyway. But I would also say that you're blind if you're also not a little bit panicked. Because if God is actually going to right all injustices and inequities, how are you going to survive that? Uh Uh-oh. Now it's not just the injustices that are committed on the other side of the world. Now it's not just the injustices that are committed on the other side of Highway 6 here in Oxford. What about the injustices committed at my own hands? What about the things that I'm guilty of? Well, y'all, that brings me to the next point and the last point. And what I think really led the people of God to find something else to praise. They lifted up their voices and they praised God as their champion. But you know what they praised Him for a second? They praised God as their husband. Look, simply stated, they rejoiced at the thought that God is not only a judge, but He is a lover. And God's intentions with His people was not to consume them with the rest of the paganism that exists around them. And not merely simply to tolerate them and to sort of begrudgingly allow them to heaven. But rather, the Revelation 19 says that it is God's intention to marry His people. To bond Himself to them in the holy bonds of matrimony. That's the glory of this praise, of this passage. Let me give you an illustration of this one. Many of you have heard me say many times that when God created man, it was, he said very clearly in Genesis chapter 2, that it was not good that man should be alone. Why? Well, we've said in the past because God himself is a trinity. And if God exists in an eternal, glorious, never-ending community in his own self-definition, if he's going to create in his image, It means that you need to be in community yourself. And that's why I would argue at the very end of Genesis 2, we have the very first recorded wedding. Adam and Eve, with God himself officiating over the wedding. Because he looks and says, I long for you to know, to see what it's like, to see the kind of relationship that I want to have with you. And the only way I can really illustrate it for you is to give you this object lesson. And I call it marriage. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and cling unto his wife. And that's why we're going to spend the entire semester, next semester, talking about dating, about marriage, and about sexuality in general. Why? Because it's a huge illustration for what God is going to say to His people. But you know the rest of the story. You see, the tragedy of the whole thing is, is that Adam and Eve decided... That they didn't want to be joined to God like this. And so they, like all of the rest of their progeny, began to rebel. And you know what the rest of the story is in the Bible? I'll tell you what the whole Bible is about. It's the story of the husband heart of God pursuing his own adulterous people to the very end of time. And then we get to our passage. Because in our passage we find out that God wins his quest. He ends. He wins. 
And He will not just have His people simply serving Him for all eternity. He comes and says, I want to marry you for all eternity. So that the Bible begins and the Bible ends in a wedding. God has no intention of having a casual relationship with His people. We will be adored by Him. So much so that the Apostle Paul will use some of the most graphic language to describe it. 2 Corinthians 11.2, Paul says, For I feel a divine jealousy for you, speaking to the church at Corinth, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Um, that's honeymoon language, kids. <laughs> Paul can be that graphic because he understands something beautiful about what John is saying here in Revelation. John describes it in verse 8 as there being fine linen, bright and pure, given the church to wear. That's what he's saying. Paul is looking and saying that our lives are to be, to be lived in the anticipation of one day, someday, being altogether lovely. That's what we have in store for us as God's people. But notice what it says. You notice that these, that these items, this garment that was given for her to wear, did you notice that it was granted to her? I find that fascinating. Because you know what that means? That means that the righteousness in which she is clothed is not a righteousness of her own. It's the righteousness that comes from the Lamb. It's His righteousness imputed to them because of the cross of Christ. You know what this means? This means that weddings are a bigger deal than we think that they are. Ginger and I love to go to weddings. Ginger has trained me to go to weddings. And uh, of all the favorite weddings, many of you have heard me talk about this a million times, but I'm going to do it a million and one tonight. Of all the favorite weddings we went to was one when we, before we had children. Before we had children, we could kind of pick up and go to weddings when we wanted to. And now we, now we can. But that's a whole other story. Anyway, we decided we would go to some friend's wedding. We came down, and it was a pretty, it was a pretty fancy affair, you know. And my wife has taught me that if you get there early enough, you get the aisle seat. See? The aisle seat is key because if you have the aisle seat, you can see the bride better as she comes down the aisle. So we were standing there, and of course, it's like any other um, uh, wedding. Everybody stands, you know, for the bride to come in and enter the room. And the doors came flinging open. And, you know, the, the, uh, the organist, I think, just sort of had a flair for the dramatic. You know, and she came down the aisle to crown him with many crowns. You know this song? Crown him with many crowns. Just this regal sort of a bursting sort of music. And in comes the bride. And I mean, she just looks beautiful. She's at her daddy's arm and she's dressed, you know, absolutely to a T. And I don't think I've ever seen anybody grin as big as this young lady was grinning. I mean, she was giggling how excited she was coming down this aisle. And so I'm kind of sitting there. Ginger, of course, has the aisle seat so she can have the best seat. Chivalry's not quite dead. And I'm standing behind her. And I'm sort of looking at the bride and kind of nodding. And suddenly I get an elbow in my gut from Ginger, right? I was like, I said, what? And she said, look at the crew. And Ginger's crying. She's gotten weepy. And I was like, what? And I looked down the aisle just to where I could see. Y'all, the groom, <laughs> like his knees had almost buckled, right? His face had turned red and these big hot tears were streaming down his face as he looked and saw his bride coming down the aisle. 
That, I realized, was why the bride was smiling the way that she was. It was beautiful. And I'll be honest with you, I love doing weddings. Ginger and I do them all the time. We have done like, what, nine this year after it's all over. Not just because I get to wear this dress. Um, That's not the reason. But I have the best seat in the house to watch all that happen. There's something beautiful about that, y'all. And here's what I realize. I realize that for a lot of people, you expect me to say something like this. And you know what, y'all? We really ought to love the Lord Jesus the same way that that bride loved her, her, uh, uh, the way that that groom loved uh, her bride. And so therefore, we ought to all try to go and love God better. Let's pray. But that messes up the image, doesn't it? You see, y'all, we are the bride. And we're the ones who, as it were, are coming down the aisle of our own personal history. And you do not feel the force of this passage. And you've not heard the invitation of Revelation chapter 19 until you have a conception of Jesus at the end of that aisle. Not standing there the way in which we mostly think about Him. Angry, bitter, annoyed, tolerating. But His knees buckling. And His face all red. And big hot tears coming down His face. When He looks upon what He has created in you. My friends, until you have begun to see the image of Jesus looking at you in that way, you have missed it. You've missed, in my opinion, the story of the Bible. And you have missed the husband heart of God. Look, I promise you, no one in this room has been more raked over the spiritual coals in the last few weeks than me when you look at the judgments that are coming for God's enemies in this book. And they terrify me. But God forbid that, I, that, that any of us should live in the face of a slavish fear that I would try to conform myself to His image because I'm terrified of what He'll do. That only lasts for so long. Some of you have discovered that since you've been here. You've discovered that a lot of what you called Christianity in high school was nothing more than sort of bending your will out of sheer fear of what God would do with you if you didn't. And I'm trying to tell you that there's something so much more wonderful. (laughs) There is at the end of the aisle. There is at the end of the aisle of our own personal histories and the collective history of mankind a great and glorious groom who will, as Zechariah 3.17 says, rejoice over you with singing, who will quiet you with His love. Is there any space in your relationship with God that is carved out so that you can even imagine the God of the universe singing love songs over you for the rest of eternity? Because if not then your God is less than the God of this book of Revelation. And that, my friends, is an invitation. Let's pray. 
Holy Spirit, would you welcome us in? Because for many of us, until you cast it in these terms, we just didn't get it. And we would confess to you that we are sorry for seeing you as the the cosmic ogre, the killjoy, the one who is shot by our failures. We ask forgiveness of you for casting you in the light of a displeased earthly father. And we ask, Holy Spirit, that you might break into the hearts of some people And as you crack it open, you would show them that you have deep affection for all kinds of sinners. Lord, that you would break the proud in this room. And that you would send them racing to you for grace. And having found that in you, would you give us the sense that eternity would be too short to utter all thy praise? Lord Jesus, we're asking tonight for you to give us something to worship. Give us something to value. And open our mouths in praise, even as we sing tonight to you. That we might join with the chorus of heaven. That it may be on earth as it is in heaven in the next five minutes. And that you might be pleased to see your people offering praise to you. Is there anything greater that we could do on this night than that? Grant us grace to do as much, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.